Brett Crozier grew up in California, graduated from the United States Naval Academy, and embarked on a 30-year career in the Navy, flying dozens of combat missions over Iraq and leading at the highest levels of operational command. He served as a commanding officer of a combat F-18 strike fighter squadron, the world's largest and most advanced communications ship, and ultimately the USS Theodore Roosevelt before retiring from the Navy in 2022. Today, we're going to talk about Brett's exciting career in the Navy and his new book, Surf When You Can. Coming up next on Veteran on the Move. Welcome to Veteran on the Move. If you're a veteran in transition, an entrepreneur wannabe, or someone still stuck in that J-O-B trying to escape, this podcast is dedicated to your success. And now, your host, Joe Crane. Getting a new car is exciting, and you deserve a hassle-free buying experience. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union makes each step of the car buying process simple, with all you need, all in one place. Find out more at NavyFederal.org. All right, today we're talking with Navy veteran Brett Crozier, author of Surf When You Can, and former commanding officer of the aircraft carrier Theodore Roosevelt. Brett, you've had an interesting career in the Navy, a long, successful career in the Navy, and uh, look, looking forward to hearing all that, uh, and also about your new book coming out. So let, first, take us back and tell us about what you did in the Navy. Sure. I had a phenomenal career, uh, Joe, in the Navy, 30 years, flew helicopters initially after graduating from the Naval Academy. Uh, switched over to fighters, flew F-18s for another 20 years to the end of my career. I had command of a squadron and then switched over to the nuclear power pipeline. So that uh, sent me to nuke school. I was the XO of the Ronald Reagan, had command of the Blue Ridge, and then ultimately command of the Theodore Roosevelt. And then even after I left the Roosevelt, I served two more years here in San Diego. Uh, Naval Air Force is kind of running readiness budgets and and still flying. I got to keep flying uh, Super Hornets at that point up until... The month I retired, so it was a it was a phenomenal thirty years. We're a Navy family, uh, and that my oldest son is a veteran doing IT stuff now. My middle son is an ensign in the Navy, and my youngest son is probably not going to the Navy because he figures his brothers have already given enough, and uh, we'll see, we'll see where he ends up. But uh, <laughs> but we live now here in San Diego, and now I work at Veterans Village of San Diego, which is a large nonprofit focused on veteran issues here in Southern California. Well, that's awesome. I you know, I got a, a personal interest. So you, you started off as a Navy helicopter pilot. I didn't know you did a transition to, to fixed wing, became fighter pilot in F-18s, um, being a Marine Cobra pilot. Had a few, there was a short window, um, probably when I was a Marine Corps captain, some of my buddy, Hilo buddies, they did the transition to uh, fixed wing. I know one of them didn't make it and, you know, one of them became an F-18 pilot and lived happily ever after. So I didn't, I didn't know that the, the Navy had done that at one point. Was that like a special case? They, so the program has existed, you know, for a long time. It's, you know, sometimes they open the floodgates and others they don't. There's usually about five or six per year that are picked up for the program. And it's a way the Navy can like level the force structure. So the sure. helicopter community has too many people and there's interested parties. They can move them towards F-18s. And so you factor in retention and, and community health and, and I, and I love flying helicopters. I was stationed in Hawaii with HSL 37 and you flew around the islands and, you know, we went on deployments, but uh, it was phenomenal flying. And then um, that's where I really learned to surf, I guess. And then switched over to F-18s and spent the better part of my career in Lemoore, Central California, flying, flying Hornets, which I loved as well. I, in fact, I, you know, I was one of those kids that loved the idea of fast, loud airplanes and saw Top Gun when I was 16. And, and that was something I always still wanted to do. So I um, yeah, loved, loved those as well. And kept flying. In fact, I 
flew helicopters and fighters on the on the Roosevelt. I got to stay current in both, and so it was Ooh, I could qualified. take off That's in a awesome. helicopter one day and I'm launched on a you know super hornet the next day, and yeah, kept doing that up until the end. I know my buddy Strap. He wanted to because when I was in, stationed in Atlanta at Dobbins, we had Huey's Cobras and F-18s. He had been a Huey pilot, became an F-18 pilot. And so at one point he, he was going to try to pull off flying all three in the same day, but I don't think he ever pulled it off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a nice hat trick. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. So, um, we always like to talk about transition out of the Navy. Um, granted you had a 30 year career and you had, had retirement under your belt. What was your transition like, uh, getting out? Did you have a clear picture of what you wanted to do? No, I, I didn't have a clear picture. I mean, I, but I actually kind of embraced the unknown, I guess. I know it can be daunting for many people based on your financial status and, and where you live. And, um, but I was pretty excited about it. I mean, and I say it to this day, cause you know, what's unique when you transition out, you have a lot more control of your destiny and you have opportunities that you might never have had before. So certainly would have been easy to go into the defense industry. There's plenty of jobs that would take advantage of somebody's experience in the military. And then you can work, you know, the defense industry, which are, which are good jobs. Um, you know, I was still current. So I, you know, I started down the path of the airlines with a major airline and, uh, which is what I intended to do initially as I figured things out and, um, and was content with that because I just was knew I could do that for as long as I wanted or stop. And in fact, for in my case, I had a, a family tragedy that, that pulled me away from the airline path as I helped deal with some stuff back home for, uh, like, you know, some family members. And then, through that, I tr- pivoted towards a nonprofit in the area here in San Diego that, and that they needed some leadership that, you know, and you come out of the military with a lot of skills, but, and you, sometimes we think ourselves as a jack of all traits, master of none. But what we're really good at, I think, is operational management, operational risk management specifically. And that allows you to step into an organization. Um, if you have any kind of leadership skills and understanding of risk management, and you can do some great things. And I think a lot of folks on the outside, you know, welcome that or need that. So I joined a, uh, a large nonprofit here in San Diego and we focus on veteran issues and was able to come in and there's still a lot to learn because a lot of it's clinical treatment related, but you know, it's managing people, it's managing programs, it's making sure you're compliant, managing risk. Um, and, and you could kind of be a senior executive level from, in my case, to kind of help guide and shape the nonprofit and the things we do in the area. So yeah. and that's where I am now. And I don't, you know, the thing is, unlike the military where you kind of know what you're going to do for three years and then you start thinking about the following tour. I mean, I, I don't know where I'll be a year from now. Cause I think I still like the idea that I have flexibility and, you know, uh, maybe I'll pivot and do something different. Um, but that's, that's kind of the excitement for me, I think. Cause yeah. Yeah, known. yeah. Now I wanted to ask, like, are, are you comfortable talking about what happened when you were CEO of the USS Theodore Roosevelt? Yeah. yeah sure. Okay. So, cause yeah, you're kind of famous. I mean, or some might say infamous, but yeah. Being yeah. a military guy, I remember when that happened and I remember reading about it. It was in the, in the middle of COVID. I just remember I just trying to, you know, get a, get a sense of what, what was going on. And it was just like, man, what a tough spot to be in. So do you mind sharing that story with us? I'd love to hear it. Oh yeah. It's, you know, um, certainly interesting time, March of 2020, which I'd been in command of the Roosevelt for a couple months at that point. And I will tell you being commanding officer of an aircraft carrier is got to be the best job in the world. You know, like I said, you could fly a helicopter one day, a, a fighter the next, and then drive the ship to the South China Sea while the Chinese Navy was chasing you. And you, <laughs> you know, not only do you uh, have nuclear reactors powering your ship, but you have a floating airport at sea. So love the job. Uh, would have done it forever. But at the end of the day, you know, as, we're, as we were dealing with COVID and the outbreak of COVID, 
uh, on the ship. And if anyone spent time on a ship, you know, it's just a, not an ideal place to have a virus um, that can spread pretty quickly. Right. Um, and, and yeah. And like the rest of the world, we we're still, we were figuring stuff out. And I don't, again, I don't fault anyone, I, you know, there's, and there's absolutely no bitterness, you know, in my, in my assessment, even, even back then, I just, we basically had a problem where we had the virus on board. We could not, you know, we were needed to quarantine people. You have 200 sailors in a, in a bunk room in some cases on a ship. And that's a hard place to try to quarantine. I mean, they're, they're too close. You're absolutely, you know, you're doing the opposite of what you really want to do. So we got to a sticking point and there's, you know, you can call it the fog of war because we were trying to get their authorities all the way back in DC to get the assistance we needed. Um, we're trying to get, you know, some barriers removed there in the local area in Guam where we were, we were pier side and we kind of kept hitting roadblocks and things were going slow. So at the end of the day, you know, I had a team, I had a team of doctors and epidemiologists and other leadership on the ship and JAGs. And, and we looked at it and just, you know, nothing was good. All the numbers were pointing the wrong direction. And we were seeing this exponential growth of COVID cases. And, and you know, we, if we weren't careful, we were going to have upwards of one to 2,000 positive cases, if not more. And then you apply some kind of fatality rate to that. And, and our worry was that, you know, 10, 20, 30 sailors then statistically would, would, would be overcome by COVID and which is, you know, an ungodly number zero is the right number. And as a CEO, when you're ultimately accountable for everything that happens on your ship, that's a big number. So I was kind of a situation where I, I, I call it maybe a, a conscious versus career moment. I knew that, you know, sending an email and asking for help and being more deliberate in my, my ask, as they say, was going to rock the boat a little bit to use the Navy term. Yeah. Um, and that might have, implications so on my career in the I, Navy, I but I was okay with that. What was, what was the predict, what was the actual predicament you were in? Like Guam didn't want you to port there because they knew you had COVID on board and it was too far to go back well, to we San were, Diego. Or? Yeah, we were already pier side. It really just came down to getting sailors off the ship as, as quickly as we could. And, and what was being made available was insufficient and it wasn't in the right quantity and we needed to really get off the majority of the crew. So um, that's the only way we were going to stem the, you know, the, the rapid spread of it. So we were just trying to do that. And there was, yeah, there's political issues. There was administration back in DC was trying to manage this and trying to figure out how to deal with that. And again, the world was going through the same thing. I mean, the entire world was trying to figure this out. You know, mm -hmm. not, no one had adequate masks. There was no such thing as a vaccine. Um, you know, we were just trying to figure out how quickly it spread and the impact. And, and granted, uh, you know, your average sailor is pretty healthy. So compared to the society at large, they're at much less risk, but. So at the end of the day, we, you know, I sent the email. I tried to basically break the log jam to try to get some needed attention and accelerate things that maybe were already in motion because we just didn't want to delay through the normal chain of process. Um, and it, in the end, it did. It got uh, it got a lot of movement. We were able to break down a lot of barriers. And then, of course, the email leaked out publicly, and then it just added additional scrutiny from the public, which, which in some cases, some argue actually helped because it just got more attention, and that means the Navy had to react even quicker. Um, but obviously it became, you know, a political issue at that point. And, and that's, you know, it's hard to, for anyone to predict how that goes. And so at the end of the day, I was relieved to command by the acting secretary of the Navy, who, again, I don't, I don't fault. I think he was in a tough predicament and he just needed to do what he thought was best for the Navy, which, you know, I was going to do what was best for my sailors. And I don't think anybody wanted anything but the best for my crew. I just knew that nobody wanted it as much as I did. So I didn't want to leave anything on the table. And, um, End of the day, yeah. It's the end of the day, I was I was relieved, and there was a lot of political discussion about it, and there was talk about going back, being put back in command, and then ultimately, uh, a couple months later, they made a final decision not to reinstate me. But then I, 
but naval aviation, you know, for the full story, naval aviation took good care of me and they, you know, like I had a good job. I kept flying. I stayed current. Uh, I stayed in San Diego when I came back and, and I thought naval aviation particularly took really good care of myself and my family. Yeah. And like I said, we're, we're a Navy family. So that was greatly appreciated. Yeah. So it was almost like the email heard around the world, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold that's that, probably the right yeah, now. Hold that thought. We're going to take a big break. We'll be right back. From start to finish, Navy Federal's Car Buying Center has everything you need to research, finance, buy, protect, and enjoy your next car. You can search for new and used cars, access vehicle history reports, and enjoy discounts on auto insurance and more. Now, if you have a new car, how about a new home to park it? Navy Federal has you covered there, too. They've made it their mission to help military members and their families tackle home ownership. With their new no-refi rate drop option, you can buy a home now, and if rates drop later, you could then lower your rate without refinancing. Plus, they offer other mortgage options with zero down payment, so you don't need to wait years to save. At Navy Federal, our members of the mission. Find out more at NavyFederal.org. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, membership required, equal housing lender. Open to the armed forces, the DOD veterans, and their families. Credit and collateral subject to approval, rates subject to change, and are based on creditworthiness. All right, back talking with Navy veteran Brett Crozier, author of Surf When You Can and former CEO of the aircraft carrier USS Theodore Roosevelt. So, so Brett, uh, you ultimately retired from the Navy after 30 years. And uh, where'd the idea f- uh, for your book come from, um, Surf When You Can? Yeah, so, you know, I, I, uh, people ask me, you know, how long did it take to write? I'll, I'll tell people it took 30 years, but because it really was, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was all this the stuff I learned. And, and really I wrote it for three reasons. I think, um, one, I wanted to honor all the men and women that serve in the Navy and, and all the incredible stories and things I learned during the military, you know, and that's, you know, it's not just military's, you know, discipline and rank and hierarchy are important, but it's, it's much more than that. Right. I think to be a good leader and have be part of a good organization, it's the relationships, the people you meet. And, and so I first and foremost wrote the book to, to honor the men and women. And then I also wrote it because I wanted people to, you know, I wanted to share these stories I learned and the importance of things like culture and having a life work balance and why it's important as a leader to be kind and how I think at the end that makes you successful and your organization even more successful. And then third, you know, kind of like we alluded to earlier, I wanted people to know I was not bitter in any way, um, you know, disappointed because it was the best job in the Navy, but the Navy is, is, has a mission to accomplish and it's a very important mission. So there was never any bitterness um, and, and nor is there today on anything that went down with the TR. I think in the end, people had to make the best decisions they could, myself included. And I'm okay with that. You know, I wouldn't necessarily change what I would do. I would have done the same thing on behalf of my sailors. But I also think that there's other people that made decisions that they thought was in the best interest of the Navy. And I don't fault anybody because it was a challenging time. Um, but it's, you know, it's not a memoir. It's a book about life and leadership and the importance of things like how to prioritize and focus on the closest alligator, as we say in the military. Um, it's the importance of teamwork and, you know, why we, I, I call the chapter, you know, pull like a Clydesdale, which means that, you know, for those who know anything about horses, two horses pulling together is, is much more effective than, you know, two separate horses with their individual efforts. Because when you have a team and you can work together, you can do amazing things. And yeah. I talk about, um, you know, sharing espresso in the first chapter because I've, you know, there's so many relationships and, and folks I've met in the, you know, throughout my career and the bonds that you could establish outside of work, you know, sharing espresso in the example of Luigi or others really make you better at work, makes you a better team. And so I think as a leader, especially today, no matter what you do, whether it's, corporate or military or nonprofit like I am now, 
understanding the aspects of leadership, maybe the the softer side of it in terms of building culture and camaraderie and the loyalty will make you effective as a leader. Um, and I think that's kind of, in some cases, the the secret sauce as they were. And I think importantly, it's just, it's a good way to, to live life. And yeah. Now, anytime throughout your Navy career, did you, were you ever saying, I oh, mean, sometimes, someday I'm going to write a book or did it, was this, was this coming around shortly after retirement, you know, like just pop in your head or was it a long time coming? I think I've always had stories. So like any good Navy pilot, I could, I could tell a story or two at the, the I bar, you know, or, uh, I don't know that I thought about writing a book till I got towards the end of my career and realized that, you know, I was leaving the service and, and these incredible experiences were going to come to an end in some way. Uh, and I was a math major to be fair. So, you know, writing for me is a hard deliberate process that, uh, that takes time. <laughs> so, um, it wasn't like I was going to, I knew I would just whip out a book, yeah. but I had, you know, the whole book writing process for those that do it. I mean, the hard part is figuring out what you're going to leave out because there's so much stuff you want to include in stories and, yeah. and how you shape it. And and I, I enjoyed that process and, I enjoyed, you know, cause you're teamed up with people and you have an editing team and you get a lot of feedback and you've got to be open to that. And, you know, unless you've been writing books professionally for years, you know, there's going to be people that are going to help you along the way and edit and give you feedback. And for me, it was important to get feedback from folks that were not in the military as well, because this is a book is, you know, for more than just those in the military, it's kind of a, a broad approach to share military stories, but with a wider audience in a way that, that relates yeah. and translates for them. Can you talk about some of the business aspects of getting started? I mean, what were your first couple of steps? You contact a publisher, you find a buddy that has written a book and, and go with that. Yeah. So it's, a, it's was definitely about networking. It's definitely about yeah. finding people that are in the industry, um, that can help guide you and mentor you. Um, and, and you, you kind of have to, you know, they, they say written out is thought out. So it's really important to, I think, put pen to paper and start writing and obviously, you know, um, kind of shape it out. You don't have to write a whole book. What you're really trying to do is write an outline initially and figure out what is the book's going to be about, um, why it's going to resonate, who you, and you got to think who your audience is, you know, how I write, how I wrote this book was, you know, very much determined by who I wanted to read it. And I wanted to be read by a wide audience. I wanted my, my niece who's 10 to read it and understand it. And some of the title chapters, you know, and have a takeaway as well as, 70 year old, you know, former Navy veteran that served, you know, back in this, you know, the seventies or something. That's to me, I had a broad eye. so I wanted to make it relatable and that helped me kind of guide the outline process. And then, yeah. And then write a chapter, you know, find a chapter to write this kind of, kind of help, you know, help folks understand what you're talking about. And then you've got this package and, and you can kind of shop it around and, and this is where connections matter and feedback matters. And you have to, you have to have thick skin. You have to be willing to accept criticism and, and guidance. Um, and I think if, when you do that, you can help with, you know, it's the whole steel sharpen steel. You know, if you're willing to take that criticism and then incorporate and not necessarily change your message, but understand how you can, you know, you can shape your, your message and your story without changing it. Um, then I think you want to find a wider audience and interest. And eventually you'll find someone who's interested and then they want to start talking about it. And then you start talking things like timelines and, and what they, you know, word counts and stuff like that. And then at some point you kind of get a green light and they're like, all right, I like it. Uh, you can sign a contract and, you know, there's all kinds of things with financing and all that that goes into it. But, you know, unless you're, unless you won the lottery, you know, it's not that you can give up your day job to do it. So I kept working and, and I'm still working to this day. This has been, um, it's been all encompassing. I'd argue it is a full-time job. It's not only write, but then promote. Um, so you basically have to, like anyone's trying to start a business, you're all in on it all the time. And then your day job is in my case, right. Running a nonprofit. So, uh, it definitely keeps you busy. You can have the time. It's not a, yeah. It's not just a weekend project. It's a, there's a lot of work because the marketing then, which is the phase I'm in now is doing podcasts, interviews, travel, 
book signings, which is fun. It's an exciting part of it. And that's really, mm-hmm. you know, how you market something is, is as much determines the success of the book as anything. And that's, uh, but that's, I enjoy that part. So that's kind of fun. And wh- where's the best place to find surf with you can surf when you can Yeah, so surf, surf when you can, you can get it any major retailer. It's, you can order the audio book, um, that I would, I did, or you can get it on Amazon uh, bar, uh, borders, Barnes and Noble. And if you go, you can go to Simon Schuster, who is the publisher that picked it up. Or you can go to my, I have a website that helps direct traffic. It's called surfwhenyoucan.com, which talks about the book. There's some links to the media and press reviews. And then I actually throw in some nonprofits that are important to me. And I think, you know, if anyone wants to know about more about nonprofits, some put some ones on there, my own included, that I think sure. are important and they're doing good work and did guide, you, guide people that way. Did you do the audio yourself on the audiobook? I did. Yeah. Really? Well, yeah. I, I'm just curious, like, well, how did that go? Like you go into a studio and they just put you in front of a microphone or it is. Yeah. You go in a studio, it's quiet and mm-hmm. you've got a producer that kind of listens and yeah. you might ask you to re reread something or, you know, restate something, you know, and, and so it gets, it's a long process. Obviously, you know, there's professional narrators out there that yeah. can do it maybe, you know, with, you know, not first pass, I mean, but, um, for your average person like myself who hasn't probably read out loud for many years since I was in third grade, I think, <laughs> uh, you know, you have to, it takes a little bit to get warmed up and get the tone right and the tempo and the pace right. And then, you know, obviously, you know, if your stomach gurgles or you, you, you know, they're going to have to, ed- they do a lot of editing as well to make it kind of seem smooth and seamless, but uh, it's a fun process. It takes, takes a fair amount of time. Yeah. And you got um, somebody, you got somebody right there listening in and, and managing the equipment or whatever the whole time. So, I mean, yeah. it's, that's, yeah. that's a lot that goes into that. I, yeah. I mean, just, just re- recording a 30 second intro or something for the podcast. Sometimes I'll do like five, six, seven, eight right. takes on it, just doing it over and over. So I, yeah. <laughs> it, it, professional narrators, they say, if the book says six hours, that might take them eight hours of recording. Um, for a total novice, it might take them three or four times that. And so it could take you 18, 20 hours. Um, I think I, I was, I don't know, for my six hour book, it probably took me 10, 10, 12 hours of recording. And then they just, just because you have those pauses and they want to make it smooth and seamless. Yeah. How many so different times, paragraph too. how many, t- how many pieces you break that up? Like how many times you go into the studio to, to get it all done? I think we did four days, four, four or five days of it. Just like, you know, a couple hours. You can't, as you know, if you sit there and talk out loud for more than about three or four hours, you're going to, your voice is going to crack and get dry. It's hard yeah. to maintain the energy you want. Right. Um, but I've only listened to part of it. You'll have to, someone have to listen to it and tell me what they think. And, um, I'm waiting for my wife. My wife's read, you know, rereading the book, and I want to want her to hear the audio. So I'll wait to hear what she says about my right. voice. And with the publisher, how did they make the decision of letting you read it versus getting a professional narrator? They gave me the option, and they and obviously they could always back out it if they wanted. But they said, you know, if you're willing to read it, which is always preferred, because then you get to hear the author's tone and intent. Then, then that's you know they're they generally would default to that unless you just can't read. So they do prefer well. the, but, uh, the actual author to read it themselves. If I think generally, yeah, can in most cases, it okay. depends on the book, obviously. And um, yeah. some are, some narrators though are incredible. And they, if you're talking about a fiction book where they're doing different characters and voices and sounds that, you know, that's not generally what the author wants to do. When you're talking nonfiction, generally uh, the author's reading is preferred because you get to hear yeah. the voice and the tone. Yeah. Cause I mean, I love audiobooks cause you can be doing other things while you're, cranking through yeah. books, but I, I, I didn't really, that's, that's interesting. I've never had that conversation about somebody who actually uh, read, yeah. their, read their own book or narrated their own book. So, um, so how are things going so far with, with the book and, uh, uh really sales good, yeah. and 
Yeah, it's it's momentum. it's been great. I, I did a trip to New York City for some promo. I was on the View and Chris Cuomo show and you were on the a lot view. of news articles. I did uh, it's just the book segment of that. What going on the View? <laughs> yeah, it was good. I didn't do the panel. I did uh, with Alyssa Farrow's Griffin, who's oh, does okay. the book segments. It was good. They were super supportive. It's fun to talk about. Uh, I was able to, you know, my wife was there, so she got to be on camera. They showed her. We talked about military spouses and very supportive. But overall, I would say it's been a great experience. I've enjoyed that and, yeah. and everything that uh, that it brings for it. So. Wow, that's awesome. Um, well, we are getting close to the end of our time. So, um, yeah, just you know, give us a quick summary of, you know, overall, if somebody out there is listening um, you know, from a business entrepreneur perspective, covered it all pretty good so far, but like anything else come to mind, uh, any advice you might give to somebody that getting out of the military and, w- and wants, wants to write their own book? Yeah, I think, um, I think just start, I think there's, you know, it's easy to second guess yourself, particularly coming from the military. Um, you know, where the, where your, your future is more unknown or uncertain as we say. Um, but just, I did, don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid on the book path just to start. Um, sometimes that's the hardest thing is just kind of getting started. That's probably true in any business, right? You, a lot of people have business ideas and they're afraid to get started because they don't have it all laid out. I'd argue, you know what? You're going to probably learn quicker if you just take that first step and start moving. It's the whole kind of fail fast mentality. Uh, and in the book writing, it's very similar. You're going to get feedback. You're not expected to write a perfect copy uh, right out of the gate. You're going to have to edit and there's going to be a lot of iterations. So I think uh, just getting started and, uh, and trust, trust your gut and, and trust your experience and know you're coming with a lot of incredible skills you get from your time in the military that will serve you well, no matter what you choose to do. Awesome. Well said. Well, um, good, good to see things are going well for you. And, uh, you've made that successful transition out of, out of the big blue nav and, uh, look forward to seeing your future success. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate the time today and, uh, I hope people enjoy the book. You bet. All right. These two, I can say these two naval aviators, naval aviators are Oscar Mike. <laughs> we're out all right thank you for listening to veteran on the move your pathfinder to freedom if you like the show leave us a review on itunes reviews are always greatly appreciated so until next time this veteran is oscar mike <laughs>